And particularly for me this evening is going to be interesting because this is the first time I presented this material in this format. So, so um, yeah, just be patient. Just be patient. Hopefully you have understood the importance of, of writing the exams and some of the dynamics that are going to be going on when you're writing them. It's not just a simple matter of, of just the bottom line to it. It's being able to understand, understand the concept, understand the theology that drives it, and to be able to explain it. That's basically what it is. And so we're kind of walking you through what it would look like, okay? And um, our, our, our intent is not necessarily to give you everything to say, but to help you organize your thoughts to be able to, to do it. If it's not what you understand, if you don't understand the material and you're just writing down stuff to answer a question that you don't really understand, you miss the point, okay? We want you to grasp the concepts. And sometimes these are not conversations that I have every day with counselees. I have to be honest with you. These are, these are conversations that I have with other counselors, and conversations I have with those who are looking toward being uh, counselors in the future. So let's go ahead and get started. This, this lecture is question number four, which is divine, which is spelled incorrectly on your, right? Spelled incorrectly on your handout. <clears throat> divine general. Uh, is it D-I-V or D-E-V? Oh, maybe, did I not put the question in there? Well, then, I've covered my own error then, you know. Spell checkers go out to lunch because they think they know what you're going to, to write, but it's not. Divine, D-I-V-I-N-E, divine, general and special revelation, and describe the nature of their authority as well as their relationship to one another. So it's, you're defining general revelation, you're defining special revelation, and you're describing the nature of, of the relationship between those two. <clears throat> We're going to do this a little bit backwards in the way that we approach it. We're going to define them at the end, um, at least correctly. We'll define them at the end. To begin with, there's a universal reality, and the universal reality is twofold. Number one is you're the counselor. You're a believer in Christ who believes that God's word is sufficient to help someone, and you're wanting to help them change. You're wanting to help another person change. Secondly, you have a counselee who's an individual, either a believer or an unbeliever. They're inside or outside the church, body of Christ, and they're facing some level of pressure in their life, some level of pressure, desiring for your wisdom, desiring you to help. So the dilemma in that, the dilemma becomes is, okay, as a counselor, what truth claims do you turn to in order to give them help and wisdom? Where do you turn? Can we use, do we, should we use secular um, methods or uh, thinking, non-secular, secular what truth claims can we use, should we use in a particular situation? And obviously, 
some situations are going to be interesting because they're going to involve some medical issues uh, and so on. But we've talked about that and we'll talk about that in the future as well. So what sources are available to us? As biblical counselors or as counselors, forget biblical for the time being, but what resources are available to us? And it really amounts to how do you evaluate your epistemology? Now, your epistemology is going to, what I'm meaning by that is on what basis do you make the claim that something is true? You're saying it's true. Now, what basis, what authority do you have for claiming that that is a truth? And basically, there are four categories. They can be divided up differently and so on. But, but nonetheless, um, what is the epistemology? How is a person claiming something to be true? How do they know it's true? Okay, so that's something that we've got to be thinking about. The most common answer among Christians, the most common answer is that God has given us two books. He's given us general revelation and he's given us special revelation. And therefore, you ought to use them both. He's given us general and special. Now, now think with me. That statement implies that there is truth that is at least profitable and perhaps even necessary to the counseling effort outside, outside special revelation, and that this truth is discovered beyond the pages of Scripture, that it's truth discovered, general revelation. So basically, there are three approaches. And just to give you an understanding of each one, I'm going to mention them, and then... Um, Okay. All right. Why is that? Okay. Doesn't make any difference. It's it's um, somewhere along the line there was a glitch. Okay. There are three basic approaches. One would be is use them both wisely because both are truthful. The second would be use them wisely because neither is fully truthful. Interesting position. And the third one is use special revelation as a filter to evaluate general revelation. Okay. And so I, I want to walk through each of them separately because it is interesting. Use them both wisely because both are truthful. So... Let me read to you some quotes, and again, just to, to give you information so that you can have uh, some resources that you can double-check if you want to, but you can think through with me. And that is uh, from individuals who are believers, or Christians, at least they claim to be, and I don't doubt that they are, they are believers. Here are some quotes. All truth is God's truth. Consequently, the truths of psychology are not contrary to the truths of divine revelation. In fact, they have the potential of being integrated into a harmonious whole. 
So again, it's kind of the picture of a two-book revelation, and both of them are needed in order to give us this whole. That's the position that we're talking about. That's from John Carter and Bruce Naramore. Uh, of course, um, Clyde Naramore was the first individual that I heard as a Christian psychologist who presented that all truth is God's truth and presented it in this, in this light. The second quote is from Gary Collins, the word, of, the word of God never claims to have all the answers to all of life's problems. Surely there is much modern knowledge that was unknown in the days of Jesus and Paul that has been given by God to help us minister to one another and serve Christ more effectively. And again, as you're listening to these, sometimes I'm, I want you to avoid saying amen, okay, until we get to the end because there, there is a catch, all right? Uh, but are you distinguishing what they're saying and the way they're, they're arguing? Third quote, third quote from Gary Collins, again, another book, um, we can and must draw from other non-biblical sources if we want to understand human being and bring about maximum change for counseling. James Guy writes, if integration is conceptualized as the search for truth concerning human nature and God is identified as the source of this truth, the next logical issue involves the revelation of this truth, it has traditionally been held that God reveals this truth to us through both general and special revelation, with both nature and the Bible serving as expressions or representations of this truth. The disciplines of psychology and theology are attempts to discover and systematize truth by means of the study of the natural sciences and biblical revelation. Now, I am not trying to confuse you. I'm just wanting to sharpen your ears, and I want you to hear um, what is being said. So, um, and sometimes it's hard to distinguish, isn't it? It's, it's like, yeah, that sounds pretty logical. That sounds reasonable. Harold Ellens writes, theology and psychology are both sciences in their own right, stand legitimately on their own foundations, Read carefully are the two books. That's the theme. There are two books of God's revelation. They're not alien in any inherent sense. Whatever truth is discovered is always God's truth, whether it's found in general revelation or special revelation. It's truth which has equal warrant with all other truth. Some truth may have greater weight than other truth in a specific situation, but there is no difference in his warrant as truth. And when he was arguing against Jay Adams about the sufficiency, he said uh, he apparently, meaning Jay Adams, apparently never thought about the notion that all truth is God's truth and has equal warrant, whether truth from nature or from Scripture. And the next quote that I have is, the task of integration involves an explicit relating of truth gleaned from general and natural revelation to that re re derived from special or biblical revelation of interrelating knowledge gained from the world and the knowledge gained from the Word. 
the integration movement offers a rapprochement by pro- proposing that the adoption of two premises, God is the source of all truth no matter where it's found, and God is the source of all truth no matter how it's found. And that rapportionment has to do with a resumption of harmonious relationships. That's the, that's the idea. So you can harmonize these two, what the writer is saying, um, through this integration, understanding that they're both truths. They're just truths coming from different, different revelations. To the integrationist, natural revelation or general revelation supports special revelation instead of being a, revi- a rival methodology. And again, this is from, uh, this is a quote from the, from the text, not the textbook, but from the book that's uh, mentioned there. I don't have a, the first quote in there, but it is a quote, it's a direct quote. Uh, that is, if God is consistent, in other words, immutable, as the scriptures suggest, then knowledge based in revelation should parallel and complement that derived from reason. Both will complement that founded in replication and observation. In other words, if it's replicated over and over again, and it's found to be true, then it's true. Underlying this approach is a faith statement common to scientists and theologians alike. The laws that govern the operation of the world are discoverable. Interesting, interesting. And again, I, I'm not questioning the motivation, um, their intent, and their love for Christ. I don't even question those things, okay? But what I am concerned about is their bottom line and their understanding of what is general revelation and what is special revelation. In order to answer this question, you've got to understand that. Okay, so the second one would be, is use them both wisely because neither is fully truthful. Now you're scratching your head. How could that possibly be? Douglas Bookman, chapter 4 of the old edition of Biblical Counseling by John MacArthur. It's an interesting chapter. They have taken it out of the new edition, but um, um, they didn't listen to me. I thought they should have left it in there, but nonetheless... Uh, the new edition doesn't have it, so you have to find an old edition if you're going to find chapter 4. But Douglas Bookman has written well on this particular topic. Anyway, listen to what is being said in that position, that neither of them is fully truthful. So hear what they're saying. Don't read, don't say they're saying something they're not saying. We don't have to do that. All human knowledge is flawed by definition. Okay, Let's listen to hear what he says. There is no reason to be any more suspicious of science than of theology. In other words, of the theories or the facts derived by human investigation and deduction than the supposed truths derived from Scripture. Now, why would he say that? Simply because Scripture is no less liable to the limitations of human participation than is any other source of truth. So you hear the argument? Regardless of the authority and or the, the verity, the truthfulness of the truth source, the, the uh, reliability or the, the uh, ability to be documented, human knowing of truth can only approach greater and greater levels of probability 
certainly is presuppositionally unthinkable. Okay. I mean, when you're thinking about it. Okay. Um, because we're unable to know the truth, and our attempts to do so are prone to error, because we're human beings, is the argument, the conclusions of theology are prone to the same errors as those made when formulating the conclusions of science. Neither set of theories about truth needs to have ultimate authority over them, over the other. Again, they're two equal books. That's, again, the presentation. Assumptions that the truth as it is revealed in the Bible need not be regarded as authoritative over the assumptions of science. If God is indeed the source of all revealed truth, any apparent contradiction is a result of error in observation or interpretation of that truth in the disciplines of science or theology, or both. Because error is probable in either field, diversity can be viewed as a stimulus for growth and development and a process which hopefully will result in higher levels of accuracy and understanding in the search of truth. There will be no single model of integration, how to put these two books together, nor will there be one set of therapeutic assumptions, techniques, or goals which are totally accurate and true. Christian psychologists are free to adopt any one of a variety of models and orientations as they seek to work out a good integration within the scope of their own private ministries. The bottom line, I hope you're wrinkling your eyebrow and you're saying, you know what, some of what he says makes sense in that every attempt has this human element in it. Um, science or psychology's observations or even the theologian in looking through the scriptures, there's a human element involved in interpretation. One more, and then we'll get to the third. Revelation as a source of knowledge presupposes a transcendent supernatural reality. Christian education argues that truth gained through this source is absolute. However, one must realize that the distortion of this truth is possible in the process of human interpretation. Therefore, the Christian must be careful not to become preoccupied with revelation and fail to use the other sources of knowledge available in seeking truth. You see the door open. Okay, well, all right. <clears throat> I'm hearing a little bit. It sounds kind of logical in some sense. It's a little bit confusing, especially hearing quotes. I understand that. Let's look at the third. Let's use special revelation as a filter to evaluate general revelation. This is sometimes called spoiling the Egyptians. I first heard that term way back in the, can I say the 70s? Yeah, I know. I know. That dates me. <clears throat> uh, predates VeggieTales. I mean, can you imagine that? Spoiling the Egyptians. John Butler taught that as a way of describing a particular Christian counselor's integration uh, method. And he called it spoiling the Egyptians, which just means, well, you listen to what's good over there, and you take what's good out of this secular 
thinking and you bring it over and you use it in biblical counseling or in Christian counseling. Describing this position, Bookman, Douglas Bookman writes, all truth claims that are the result of human cognitations, that just simply means human reasonings and observations, investigations, theorizing must be subjected to the word of God alone. That will, uh, I didn't read that correctly. Uh, the word of God that alone will be allowed to pass judgment on the veracity and the applicability of those truth claims. So it's the Bible who holds this upper weight and authority. It's not two equal books, which is a distinct position from the first two. Because the first two were the two, you have two books, general revelation, special revelation, you know, and you need to use them both. The second position says, no, neither one of them is truly accurate because you have human human reasoning involved there, and so you have to use both of them to establish the truth from the other, kind of. And this one's saying, no, you have special revelation of the Bible here, and it filters anything here. Anything that's not found here, but is discovered here, that doesn't violate this, can be borrowed. Okay. So, uh, let's, yeah, let's, let me give you one more, one more quote on the, the, uh, the last thought there is the filter. Truth derived from the study of any segment of general revelation, whether psychology or any other field, is not as trustworthy as the truth found in the Scripture. And I think we would have to say, you know what, that's got a ring of truth to it, you know. This is the reason that the integrationists will filter psychological truth through biblical truth and will only accept that which is not contradictory to special revelation. Okay, now, what, what, what are we trying to get you to see when we're saying that um, there's a problem? And, and to understand how general revelation relates to special revelation. Okay, so what's the misunderstanding? Well, the misunderstanding to begin with is the very definition of revelation has been changed. So in the midst of a conversation about the value of general revelation, and special revelation, the definition of special revelation has changed. What they're talking about in the arguments that I've just read for you is a different definition than the original definition that theologians have understood through the centuries. First, revelation by definition is non-discoverable through human investigation or human reasonings. It is, by definition, God communicating to us that which we would not know otherwise except through revelation. He revealed it to us. That's revelation by definition. Here's from um, a gentleman by the name of William English. 
He writes, the truths of general revelation are not delineated to us by God. Instead, they are discovered by human, by fallible humans. Do you hear the confusion? The truths of general revelation are not delineated to us by God. And yet revelation, by definition, is God revealing himself to us. At this point, it doesn't matter whether the explorer is a Christian or an atheist. Truth discovered in general revelation must be studied and examined for their trustworthiness, regardless of religious beliefs of the giver. It's, again, using the Bible as a filter to filter what they're saying is general revelation, which is the discoveries, uh, the research, the psychologies that we see around us, human research. 1 Corinthians 2, and again, for the sake of time, I'm not going to read all of these scriptures, but 1 Corinthians 2, for example, what man knows the things of a man except the spirit of a man which is in him? You don't know what's inside somebody else, but the person does. That's the point that he's making, except for the Spirit of God. Now, now we have received not the Spirit of God, but the Spirit who is from God, not, not the Spirit of the world. I'm sorry. We have, we have, now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we may know the things that have been freely given to us by God. What things and how were they given? Special revelation. God revealing to us what we would have never known aside from his revealing it to us. Okay? And then 2 Peter 1, 19 and 20. And so we have the prophetic and word confirmed, which you do well to heed as a light that shines in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this first, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation for prophecy, and prophecy here is divine revelation, it's revelatory. Prophecy never came by the will of man, you see, not by the discoveries, not by the research, not by the observations, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. They were so directed and carried in the process that what they wrote was indeed what they wanted to write, but it was indeed God breathed out his word. That's, that's what we believe. So, Francis Schaeffer, uh, not Francis Schaeffer, um, Lewis, Sperry Schaeffer, okay, the theologian. Revelation, by its nature, transcends the human capacity to discover. That's very important. When you're, when you're trying to understand general revelation, you, you have to define revelation. And you can't define revelation as human discoveries. It's non-discoverable. Uh, revelation, by nature, transcends the human capacity to discover and is a direct communication from God concerning truths which no person could discover for themselves. Yes, I'm with Schaefer. See, that's the way it has been traditionally understood through the centuries. But in our modern world, 
the definition of general revelation has changed. Erickson, the making known of that which is unknown, the unveiling of that which is veiled. Because humans are finite and God is infinite, if they, if they are to know God, it must come about by God's manifestation of him himself, of himself. There are two basic classifications of revelation. General revelation is God's communication to himself, of himself, to all persons, at all times, in all places. Special revelation involves God's particular communications and manifestations of himself to particular people at particular times, communications and manifestations that are available now only by consultation of certain sacred writings, the Bible, the Bible. Bancroft, that act, by, uh, that act of God by which he communicates to the mind of man truth, not known before and incapable of being discovered by the mind of man unaided. Thesen, by revelation we mean the act of God whereby he discloses himself or communicates truth to the mind, whereby he makes manifest to his creatures that which could not be known in any other way. And again, I, I just want you to know that when I'm saying to you these definitions, I'm not standing alone, okay? I'm standing with a long line of orthodox theologians through the centuries. Unger, even though I... Unger's a little confused on a couple of topics, but nonetheless, he writes, it's the expression of the fact that God has made known to men truths and realities which men could not discover for themselves. So the first thing you've got to explain, and that is the confusion over the word general, okay? When you use the word general, it's general. It's 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 encompassing a broad spectrum. It's not as specific. So it's cutting across a broad spectrum. Um, loosely related topics and so on. It's general. It's general. This is in contrast to special revelation, which is conceived to connote narrow or specific revelation, a specific category. Um, dealing with, obviously, but one category, okay? So an integrationist, it might, they might say something like this, general revelation is so-called because it communicates the picture of God in nature. The contrast to special revelation is presented thus, God is revealed in the Scripture and in Jesus Christ in a special way or particular details about God's person, nature, and his plan for human life and his relationship with him are revealed in the Scripture. And sometimes you'll hear people who would argue that the Bible is good for spiritual things, like how to get saved, but how to really understand the human condition, you have to include psychology. After all, um, most counselors do not understand the neurological workings of transmitters in the brain, which to me, when I heard the argument, I had to snicker to myself because in over 40 years of counseling, 
I have never in a counseling session had to explain to an individual the, neurolog the neurological firings in the brain and the neurotransmitters that function and how they function to help a counselor. Okay. Not saying that it's not interesting. And I'm not saying that the brain scans aren't interesting. I'm not saying that. But are they, are they um, uh, vital? Is it necessary? Okay. Now, again, notice that it's because special or specific details are revealed in Scripture that theologians refer to it as special revelation. He's misunderstanding, again, the definition of special and specific, or special and general revelation. Charles Ryrie writes, general revelation is exactly that, general. It's general in its scope. It reaches everybody all the time. It's not discoverable truth. The rain falls on the just and the unjust. Okay, that's, that's in a sense, we'll look at common grace a little bit later. But it's that kind of thinking that is evident to all. Now, they might not recognize it, but it's evident to all. Romans 1, right, uh, tells us that in creation, I mean, everybody ought to look and see that there is a God. But they don't, they deny that, the reality that's right in front of them. That's general revelation. It's general revelation. It's general in methodology. It employs a universal means like the heat of the sun or the human conscience. Simply because it's revelation that affects all people wherever they are and wherever they live, it can bring light and truth to all, but if rejected, brings condemnation. So again, Thiessen writes, distinguishes special revelation as those acts of God whereby he makes himself and his truth known at special times to specific people. The content of general revelation deals with God and various aspects of his being and activities. Any efforts to widen the scope of general revelation to include information or theories about aspects of creation, man, and understanding human, human nature, anything else besides, besides God, does not have the support from the Bible which limits the scope of general revelation to information about God. So we can understand generally there is a God. He's the creator. But is rejected by the unbelieving world, is blinded by sin. And God, by his Holy Spirit, opened your spiritual eyes to understand you were lost. And he has provided for you specific revelation through the Son, right? And through his word. Um, revelation may be defined as divine communication to humans. Among Christian theologians, revelation has traditionally been divided into two forms, general and specific. General being God's communication to all people at all time. It's creation. It's there. Special revelation is communication particularly to particular people at particular times. The revelation of Christ, we have the scriptures. Okay. Now, it's also a misunderstanding of the nature of man himself. Man is finite. Man is finite. Deuteronomy 29, 29 says the secret things 
belong to the Lord our God, but those things which are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of his law. Yeah, Ecclesiastes 3.11. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity in their hearts, except that no one can find out the work that God does from beginning to end. You don't know the mind of God unless he reveals it. That's the bottom line. God revealing himself to us. Okay. So we are finite. We, we can't, unaided by God, understand his revelation. We don't. Uh, the unbelieving world again rejects general revelation. Um, it's a misunderstanding of the nature of man. It's a misunderstanding of the extent of de depravity. The extent of depravity. We'll talk about the noahic effect of sin when we talk about the limitations of human research. And again, some of this is redundant, but in order to understand the concepts for the, for the exams, you, you have to go back over these things and make sure that your thinking is, is in line with, with, um, with truth and, and, and the scriptures. So again, um, the Noahic effect of sin is just simply, in a nutshell, uh, is that sin has affected our ability to think and reason. Um, man is a fallen sinner. The heart is desperately wicked. Who can know it? We'll talk uh, toward the end of tomorrow, a session called um, Counseling Difficult Heart Issues. And Counseling Difficult Heart Issues, you will run across some counselees who are thoroughly convinced that their sin-bent thinking is not only justified, but is righteous. And I've run across a few who I thought have just been pulling the wool over my eyes. You know, you're kidding me. You're just flat kidding me. And in fact, as they were, uh, you know, later they would confess that, you know, it wasn't true. But I've run across a few who I, they've thoroughly convinced me that they were thoroughly convinced that what they thought was right I mean, how, how plain can it be in Scripture? And you, ref okay, that's another. I'll chase that rabbit later in the. <laughs> the heart is desperately wicked. Who can know it? And the thinking is God knows it. And God alone reveals your heart. How does he do that? Oh, I hate it. Well, I don't hate it, you know, as being God's grace to me. But it's an uncomfortable process when God allows me to struggle. And I think that it's something that if I could get rid of it, as if it's an intrusion from God, when it's really his grace in revealing to me what I need to know about my own heart. I desperately need him. Okay, so to think, so to think that I could in my own human reasoning discover a truth and reality that would shape and change lives that somehow God forgot to put in the book. Do you see how strange that is? Related positions, okay.
in regard to what can be known by human reasonings in the world around us, integration misappropriates the term truth. The biblical counselor must be cautious about including extra-biblical ideas as truth. Secular ideas do not contribute to our understanding of man and his problem. God's Word provides the necessary answers. That's the bottom line. It's not saying that there aren't some things that are helpful, and we'll talk about those in just a second. There is knowledge... There is knowledge by means of human investigation that can be discovered in creation, both by natural and, and both natural and human, but is totally unable to affect spiritual change. In other words, they can tell us the difference in a brain scan between a person who's a criminal and a person who's not. They can show us the difference in the brain scans and the neurological firings of a person who is who is depressed or or well depressed there's some medical issues could be in there but to say the adulteress and the adulterer and the person who's not they can show you those things they can you can see them they can document that there is something going on there chemically in the body okay but they can't affect change it's 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 not critical to understanding the nature of the problem and how god wants change so secular psychology can play an illustrative role they can illustrate for example and again these are just examples and please understand that they were off the top of my head when i was thinking through Somebody might ask me, well, give me an illustration of what an illustrative role is for psychology. Psychologists have made some interesting observations. And again, we'll look at some of those when we look at common grace and so on. But, but, but in just thinking it through here, parenting. For example, years ago, I was a counselor at a counseling center. Um, uh, I won't name it because I don't want you to think any less of it. But at any rate... Uh, it was a state licensed, um, and so in the in the working with troubled children, traumatized children, they brought in training, and so as a counselor, uh, I set in on some of those, and it was interesting. One particular lesson was on maternal deprivation. Have you ever heard of it? Maternal deprivation. It's what happens when you leave a child alone and you just neglect them. They don't, quote, bond with people. They don't bond with a mother. They don't have that caring, as it was described, skin-to-skin kind of bonding to begin with. And if, Well, it was interesting as they used case studies to see that, in fact, these children... When they were older, as they followed these cases, there was a distinct struggle in the lives of those children. There's a distinct struggle. I think it illustrates to me, as a believer, the importance of godly parenting. 
See, it doesn't. What answers do they have for that? And they would have the cognitive behavioral methods to treat maternal deprivation, and they would have early intervention to treat. Do you see what I'm saying? But I think it illustrates for us. So, in, so there are, in a sense, I think, ways in which psychology can illustrate for us, even though if, I'm go if I've only got eight hours in a week to study some serious stuff about human condition, I'm probably not going to be reading, <laughs> reading studies. But when they come along and I see them, I am, I am interested in them. Secondly, it can provide a provocative role. It can play a provocative role. And I think a good illustration of that has been recently the concern about abuse. The concern for particularly women who have been systematically abused. I think it has provoked us as biblical counselors to make sure that the way that we're responding to the victim as well as the perpetrator is indeed biblical. By the way, just a commercial. We've got a special weekend coming up toward the end of April. We'll have two sessions. One will be on abuse and one will be on uh, sexual issues, sexual gender issues. I forgot to mention to you guys, uh, particularly you might be interested, you know. Um, we'll get the word out. We're going to send it out. It's on my, it's on my list, okay? And I just got the promo paragraphs written up today to, to hand to the person who's going to do our promotion a little bit. So hopefully you'll get an email on it. If you don't, holler. You all, you all are welcome to come. Yeah, it's, I think it's going to cost you. You know, we got to pay for the sound system. You know, so we got to we got to make it back. I want a vacation this summer. <laughs> Honestly, I'm just teasing you. I am just teasing you. A provocative role. I think that what it's done is it has shook us as counselors to understand that. Listen. Something that we may have in the past, and I don't want to misspeak, we may have in the past not noticed some things that could have been indicators that someone was indeed very much suffering and was trapped with no way out, seemingly. Okay, and we didn't recognize it. So I think it can be provocative, you know. They bring up these topics. Let's think them through, you know. Let's do it. The, uh, the gender issue, right? How do you treat people as, as, you know, fellow creations? You love them. But how do you speak into those situations? I think that's provoked us as counselors to think through how do we address those issues. That's another reason why we're having a special weekend because we can't do that all in, all in here. We'd spend all of our time on those two topics. Hopefully we'll be able to expand that as time goes and maybe you can have some input and help us. Okay, in regard to the nature of um, general revelation, one is it declares the glory of God. It proclaims the work of his hands, pours forth Speech day after day displays his knowledge night after night. Psalms 19. Psalms 19. 
It declares the glory of God. It reveals the existence of God. And how sad it is that the unregenerate mind just can't see it. I, I don't, I, I'm not a big social media person. I get on every once in a while. Pretty much I'm on Facebook Marketplace, you know, looking for a cheap buy, whatever. But once in a while I'll get on there. There'll be a thing on creation. Do you ever read the comments, you know, when there's something about creationism? I mean, it gets heated quickly. And it's, it's amazing to me. I understand the blindness of a person's eyes. And so when they look me boldly in the face and say, you must be some kind of weirdo who still believes that God created the world Seven days? You know what I'm saying? Uh, it's hard sometimes not to get sinfully defensive. Of course, you're playing right into their hands. Don't you realize they're spiritually blinded? They don't have a better option. They've denied the reality around them. Man is accountable and condemned for not believing in the Son of God. In regard to, to, to the true nature of special revelation, that's general revelation. Creation reveals God and his existence. Special revelation is the only thing that changes the heart of man is God's word. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I thought that's what it was. So then faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Yeah, how could I miss that one? Yeah, the only thing that changes, what's going to change our heart? Hearing the truth of God's word. Only through special revelation can a man be re reunited with God. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, Paul says, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and to the Greek. And that 10 out to the side of that reference there in your, does it, does it have a comma and a 10? If it is, that's a mistake. It's a typo. It's in my, my copy. I don't know if it got into your handout. Just scratch that 10 out as a human error. <laughs> Where no, not not second, not not the ten seventeen, but just the ten. It says one sixteen, and then it has a comma, and then a ten. Just strike out that ten. Um, sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. Yeah, that's it. Okay, so those are the those are the implications of um, understanding general revelation and special revelation would you have a question we've got six minutes i can't let you out early if i do the bells <laughs> just kidding you. yeah i get in trouble from the director do you have a quick question or a comment do you... ah yeah 
Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Here's uh, uh, April 27th from 8.30 in the morning until 12 noon. Uh, and the cost is, I told you, $40 for guest. And if you all of a sudden join Sunrise, we give you a break, okay? Uh, campaigning a little bit here. Uh, Stephanie, who's, who's directing our conference, is going to be the one that's taking care of the registrations. Um, but the main topics are going to be abuse. Uh, we're looking at ACBC has designed some guidelines and some information that I think is very helpful uh, in just trying to map out a plan as a ministry toward what are we going to do when we see these situations. A little bit on how to, how to identify them and a little bit of how to, how to work through them. It's an overview. I mean, it's only you know, one session, so we're just trying to get you acquainted with that, with that material. I don't want everybody joining Sunrise. And <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. We do try to to help. We've got, um, yeah, yeah. We got a, we got a great bunch and and so on. But we're trying to trying to reach out. Another thing that we're wanting to do with that particular weekend is we want to get people who are doing biblical counseling in our area, whether they're certified or not if they're really interested, to get them acquainted with others in our community who are like-minded, trying to do the same thing. And so we wanted as kind of a, okay, we're gonna to get together and talk about some things, but we're just gonna fellowship as well. We've got a Q&A at the end that we're going to do, and that'll just get us all acquainted with each other. We're not the only ones. You know, Sunrise, we were, we were the first ones to start a training ministry and uh, God has graced us by that. But I think that there are potentials in our community that will, that will surpass our abilities even here at Sunrise. And I'm looking forward to it. I am not thinking in any way that there is any competition. If there could be 10 counseling centers and ministries and even training centers, I'd support each one of you. I really would. I really would. Our our phone continues to ring, not just from those crazy calls that you get, you know. Uh, you, you, are you getting the political calls and all the other things, you know, just the scam calls and so on? Um, we continue to get phone calls, and we continue to mention people in our community who do biblical counseling. And we just need to make sure that we're knowing who each other are and what our ministries are doing. Okay. All right. We have three minutes. Yes. That's okay. You raised your hand so you can change the subject. Good question. Good question. And the question is, is all biblical counseling meant to be free of charge? Um, is it wrong? I'll add to your question. Is it wrong to charge? And um, <clears throat> the general thinking is 
is that there's nothing particularly sinful about charging. If I'm going to take an hour out of my time, my week, I would expect that you as a counselor, you know, would be, or a counselee, would be willing to at least help me to be able to stay alive because I've got to support my family and whatever it is. There's also the thinking that it also helps the counselee to be committed. If you're in it for whatever the amount is, you'll be more committed. Now, personally here at Sunrise, we do not. And the thinking is because I've been a pastor for eons, you know. I mentioned the 70s. Okay, I was pastor before then. So I, I just, and I told Kevin to begin with when we discussed that, can we support ourselves as a counseling ministry and do what we do without charging? And I said, Pastor Kevin, in all honesty, I can't open the Bible and turn it around and show them truth from the Scripture and then say, that'll be $50. It's just me, right? But it's not wrong. It's not wrong. Um, there are counseling centers that charge. We do not. That may be why we have a waiting list, too. I don't know. But that's a good question. That's a good question. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Say it again. Yes, yes, yes. We send we send information out, and the information that we send out lets them know what to expect, and uh, we ask and let them know that there are there are charges that we have to pay. We have to pay rent, and you know, not not rent, but the mortgage and utilities and so on. And we buy materials and and. You know, we're taking time away from families and those kind of things. But, uh, but yeah, yeah. And, yep. and because of our status as certified biblical counselors, we don't get insurance uh, reimbursement. So, okay, it's 7 o'clock. You are on your own for 15 minutes. <laughs>